I'm Aria Schwartz along with Rachel Galligan, and welcome to the Windsider Show where it's all about the W. Our next guest is kind of a big deal. Emmy award-winning journalist and New York Times best-selling author. She spent seven years as a columnist and feature writer for ESPNW, ESPN.com, and ESPN the Magazine, currently working for Meadowlark Media and co-host of the podcast Off the Looking Glass, Kate Fagan. our show please consider joining our patreon community patreon.com backslash windsider for less than a cup of coffee a month you can directly show support for the hard work we do covering the w and don't forget to see our amazing staff's written content on windsider.com that's windsider.com welcome back to the windsider show we are so honored to welcome our next guest the one the only kate fagan author of hoop muses and we can't wait to discuss this project with you but first off, how are you? Where are you? And what's going on in your life? Um, I'm good. I'm coming to you from Charleston, South Carolina, where I moved about four years ago, and I love it. And also, I have to tell you that you just sort of stumbled over Hoop Muses, and we almost didn't call it that for that very reason, because it's a mouthful. Uh, but over the last two years, I've gotten used to it, but it's been funny listening. You, you kind of have to get, you have to like wrap your like, mouth around it in a very distinct way so I appreciated that right there well I've just been calling it the basketball bible but like because I haven't <laughs> thought of like a better term but it, it I'm no joke this is I don't I'm not a big reader I read you know articles about the W um and stuff like that but for the most part like I'm not the biggest reader but this is like a you can't put it down I told you just before we started recording my son has been listening and learning all these stories every night before bedtime <laughs> Um, and before nap time. Um, so yeah, it is, I will get the name better. Hoop Muses. Yeah, that's that right. Is. Actually named by Simone Augustus. It was her idea. So there we the go. Goat. I love yep. it. All right. Fun fact. Okay. Okay. Before we dive into the book, um, I think it's really important. I, I love this question and I genuinely want to know. Um, I think we, you know, you, you, you don't get to this spot. You don't get to this position where you write a book of this magnitude if you don't have a deep rooted kind of just foundation and love in the game. Um, you have quite a story yourself, came from basketball family, had a great high school career out East. Um, you actually ended up playing out here by me, um, mm -hmm. out at you go buffs. Um, they're having a great year. Love the job that JR is doing. Um, you actually wrote about your experience in the reappearing act. Uh, shout out to that phenomenal read. Please everyone go check it out if you have not. Um, but I, I, I kind of want to just start at the beginning with your journey, um, your love of the game, um, your love of basketball, and just kind of go with it because we, we, yeah. we, want, we want people to know about you. Yeah, well, I appreciate that opportunity because it's, it's something I don't get to talk much about anymore. And I, and I just, I, I grew up, my dad, um, who, he played overseas. He played in France for a number of years and Amsterdam. And so my sister was actually born on the island of Corsica while he was playing for a team in Ajaxio. So I grew up like that kind of prototypical gym rat and, you know, the whole, the, the starting of your, your, your dad, sometimes your mom, although much rarer in, you know, the eighties when I was doing this, um, bringing me to all those pickup games and it starts like, I'm just hanging out in the bleachers and then I scamper onto the court between games and then, 
you know, my dad starts rebounding for me. Then I'm allowed to play in the games. Then I'm a captain of the team at the pickup games, you know, so I have been around the game pretty much every day for my entire life. That doesn't mean that it was always a smooth relationship with the game, but it's just in me in a way that no other sport or activity ever could be. I think in all of that kind of like love, dedication, friction that I've had with basketball, kind of poured it all into hoop muses and other things along the way. But I feel like this is kind of like a love letter to the game in some ways. It's it's an amazing love letter. Um, I have to say, in researching you, I love finding random tidbits and whatever. And I noticed that at a time, you were setting records for consecutive free throws made. <laughs> and I need to get into your head for a little bit because it was 44th made in a row. What happened on the 45th? Do you know what happened already and you're teeing me up? No, no, not I legitimately don't. But now I feel like this was a much better question than I anticipated yes. when I thought about it. And I, 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 I'm not sure that when I missed this 45th free throw, I thought it would be a story to tell. But now I feel like it is. And no one's ever asked me that before. They're always like, well, you made 44 consecutive free throws. And I'm not all that proud of that record because maybe Rachel can attest to this. It's not like free throw shooting is the most dynamic thing you can be good at. Um, so I'm kind of like, I hope people take it as a representation of what a good shooter my dad taught me to be. But re regardless, here's the story of the 45th. I wish, I, I think it was in the NCAA tournament. So I had gone that whole year without, maybe I missed one at the front end of the year, but I'm not sure. And it wasn't like I was shooting eight to 10 a game. So this was like, I didn't miss a free throw over probably something like 16 to 17 games. Cause on average, I probably shot two to four free throws or something like that a game. Um, and I think it was in the NCAA tournament and the ref gives me the ball and I look up, but like, and I look up, but I don't look at the rim. Just my free throw shooting routine was like, catch the ball, spin it. I'm looking at the ball. I check my feet on the line and like that little mark that's always at the center core at center of the free throw line. Right. So, and I dribble twice and I only look at the rim when I'm going up to shoot and I look at, and I go up to shoot and the net is tangled, which should never happen on a free throw. I, I don't think, I mean, this is, you know, this is no, 2000, this is 2004. Maybe the nets are tangled all the time back then and nobody cared, but that like would never happen now. It would never happen. And I like, I remember kind of like almost pulling back to like toss the ball to the ref and be like, fix the net. But I was already in motion, but I was so thrown off. And so I, I missed oh. it. And immediately after, I'm like pointing at the net. Like, I'm not, it, it didn't, that, that free throw shooting, I had already had like, it wasn't important to me. I mean, I guess it was in my head a little bit because people had, were talking about it at the time. But I, and I, but I wasn't like bitter or angry. I just was like, damn, I was like, why didn't you fix the net? And that's how I missed the 45th. Well, you kind of touched on that because, like, I was going to ask, you know, is it – do you know the streak is happening? Is it harder your first free throw of the game versus in the middle of the game or a different point of the game? Like, I'm, I think free throws are such an interesting aspect. I agree with everything you said as far as, like, shooting and all that, but I just think they're so interesting because, you know, it's, it's the – I don't know if this is fair to say because I never played, like, both of you, but it feels like the one aspect of the game – where you are there on an island. You are yeah. playing a game kind of like a tennis game. It's not a team sport when you're shooting the free throw. 
Um, so I'm always so curious about like that aspect of the game. Free throws are just so interesting. And I love you walking us through your, uh, your free throw <laughs> technique. Is it, have you changed your free throw technique when you play pickup these days? If you play pickup? Oh, well, I don't shoot. I, well, I don't know what pickup you're playing where you're shooting free throws, but um, <laughs> no, my free throw shooting technique never changed. My dad, he didn't teach me a free throw shooting r- routine, but he taught me what he did for his and why. And then he showed me the mark on the court. I actually write about this in, in a book I wrote that came out um, last May called All the Colors came out about he was diagnosed with ALS. And it was like about our relationship, both as him teaching me the game and we were so close growing up and then me coming out as gay and like there was some distance. And anyway, so he taught me all of the the. And, and Rachel, I, you, I'm sure you have a free throw shooting routine that like is embedded in my soul. Embedded. I will be. No, you don't change yeah. that. No, I will be 90 if I'm lucky to still be alive, and I will have the same free throw routine. Um, but, but to your question, like I probably what kept me from being a better basketball player was I, I really could. It was rare that I could just completely lose myself in the game. And maybe this makes me a better writer, but it it hindered me on the core. Like I was always meta aware of everything. I, you know, I was so yes, I was aware of that free throw shooting record. Not it, it wasn't in a way where I was like, this is so amazing and I'm so great. It was more like I've made this many in a row. So every time I stepped to the line, I was like thinking thoughts yep. more than just the context of the game. And that was never all that helpful for me. When you turn 90, because that day will come, uh, we're going to have you back on the show and you're going to shoot 45 <laughs> free throws and we'll see how many you make. Okay. I mean, no, and so far removed from my, sorry, go ahead, Rachel. I'm not going to interrupt you again. No, you're good. You're good. We, we have so many questions. We're just firing away. Do you still play? I, you know, since my dad died, I haven't played because he was really the catalyst. He was playing pickup up until he was diagnosed at like age 59. And so when every time I went home, I'd play with him. And that was kind of like my routine of staying connected to playing the game. And I don't, since, since he passed away, I just have, I haven't found a game down here. And I... And, it, and it's specifically hard because, as you mentioned with the free throw, like my game was very predicated on outside shooting and all the games I can find down here because it's a really temperate climate in Charleston. Like, you know, we got a lot of pickleball um, is everybody's playing outside. And Rachel, I just I, I'm not a good outside basketball player. I certainly did it growing up. But like I just like you take away key weapons when you're playing outside because it's rare. You have like a great outdoor hoop and a great outdoor ball and no weather elements so maybe my pride is keeping me from playing more frequently <laughs> this is, this is I, I i love it but also the the pickleball line got me yeah yeah uh, there's they repaved the court out here with pickleball lines and i was like how how i, I can't accept it you might need to just jump into that i'm looking at your numbers real fast because the coach in me is like all right hold on was she actually worth a shit in college because all right five years I can see you shot 43% your senior year from three-point line. That's pretty solid. Free throw line, career 86% free throw shooter. That's really impressive. Good for you. Average what? <laughs> 12.8 your senior year. Your assist to turn- turnover ratio was solid. I mean, not bad, not bad. So, yeah, yeah, just for those who are um, wondering, you know, about, about Fagan's stat line throughout, throughout college, there, there's some of her numbers. Um, let's transition now a little bit to um, – the NWBL, what a phenomenal um, experience that you had. One that's a really unique perspective. Um, you got to play for the Colorado Chill. 
won, that was a franchise, I think, that won two championships before they folded, and I think it was 2007. To this day, I would have given anything in the world for the, you know, that investment to have gone through, and they would be in the WNBA. It would make my life a hell of a lot easier out here in Colorado. Yeah. Um, first off, you played for Kelly Packard, didn't you? I did. I I did play for her. I think both I, I seasons know. I was on the chill. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know Kelly Packard from my days at Ball State. So very very um, random. I was I was looking at the coach at the time, and I forgot she was there. But anyway, um, let's talk about that experience, um, that league, those couple of years in your life. I mean, some of your teammates were what Ruth Riley and Becky Hammond. Yes, I was pretty lucky with who was on that squad, how great they were. It was also. Um, uh, Jamie Carey. I don't know if you remember her. She played at Stanford yeah, and then played yeah. for the Connecticut Sun for a while. And then Katie Cronin, who was Becky Hammond's backcourt mate at Colorado State when they were top five in that would have been like maybe 97, 98 era. Um, yeah. So it was it was that group. I mean, my best friend in the world I met playing at the Colorado Chill. So, I mean, aside from that, though, it was it it was just I had I had been playing in Ireland and it was really challenging. It sounds like it would be this like amazing experience. Cause I, I had family that was Irish and it, I was playing in Dublin, but I was having a really hard time because it was, it was, it was professional cause they were playing, they were paying me, but they didn't pay anybody else on the team. In fact, everybody else on the team had to pay to play. Wow. So it created this really strange dynamic and I was really lonely and I actually came home from playing in Ireland and, I just had a really tumultuous relationship with the game at that point. I didn't, I didn't think I wanted to keep playing, but I didn't know who I was going to be outside of basketball. Perhaps that's something you can relate to Rachel. It's just like, that's all I'd cared about since I was like eight. And I was like, I'm not ready. I've put so much into this. I'm not ready to stop. So I, I heard about this. I, I got like an individual tryout with the chill and I, I signed on just for, for those two seasons and it was just a really cool inside experience at like a league trying to make it in professional basketball, which I think really illuminated for me the issues facing these leagues, um, the, the very passionate people that can often be inside of them, but the struggles they face because specifically the Colorado chill, like we had great attendance for this league and that the Northern Colorado, like the Fort Collins area was obsessed with women's basketball and I think you alluded to it, Rachel, that like all of that, all of building the chill was pointing toward getting a franchise in the franchise in the WNBA. And like their timing was just so wrong because of like the Comets folding and then the Detroit shock folding and the WNBA really pulling back on expansion until they were really ready. But that Colorado chill, like that team and like the energy behind it, like they, they should have been a WNBA franchise. Like I wasn't good enough to play in the WNBA, but that franchise really had, I thought had what it needed to make it. Well, and what was that like? I mean, just like even the season, the schedule, the travel, I mean, from a resources perspective, just at that time, like, just what was that like? Like, like, how did you guys, how did you guys travel? Yeah, so we flew, obviously we flew commercial, um, and here, here's a detail, which kind of ties back to Hoop Muses, too. Um, in, when we would go to San Jose to play, we were staying at a hotel there, and the hotel would lend us their limo 
And so to drive to and from the games, we would like pile into the limo, including people sitting and like crunched up, like, you know, like with their holding their legs, like in the feet area of the limo. It's so all whatever it was, I mean, we would only travel what we needed. So probably we, we would bring on average 10 people. Like we wouldn't, we'd have people called local players and sometimes they wouldn't travel because of cost. But I remember like Becky Hammond climbing into this limo and, you know, and it wasn't like a, it, it was an old limo, like with tattered leather seats and we're all just like not safe. And here's Becky Hammond, who at the time was playing with the Liberty, but I mean, she's sort of a superstar now and she wasn't necessarily yet then. She was sort of on the come up in the WNBA, but that always stood out to me. So it was like, it, it let that stand in as a representation for how traveling went. And that ties to Hoop Muses, because if uh, when I was researching the All-American Redheads, this barnstorming team that started out of um, Arkansas in the 1930s, if you follow their... Uh, the the decades that they traveled the country and played these teams, there's this one era where they travel in an airport limo. Um, so I, it just, it, it was a really, it was a really good inside experience at, at to, like the financial, like how you had to make these things work. And you didn't, even if you did these things, it still sometimes didn't work. I'm so happy you brought up the redheads. We'll get to that later. <laughs> Obviously I have an invested interest in that. But I, I can't lie. I was listening to your TED Talk last night and I was like waking up my wife to be like, you need to listen to this. This is amazing. She's like explaining it because like for a lot of people who are diehard WNBA fans, um, I think often you find yourself in that argument. And I know you touch on it in Hoop Muses, um, in, in the halftime speech. I'm calling it the halftime speech. Am I allowed to yep. do that? that, that right. Yeah, definitely. All right, cool. It was a great one. It riled me up for the second. Um, but, but you know, it, it to me, like, I think you laid it out so perfectly. Um, you broke it down in stakes and storylines, and I think I would butcher it. But can you give our listeners a little, a little tidbit uh, of what you mean by stakes and storylines? Yeah, and feel free to sample some audio here from that TED Talk if, you, if you're so inclined. I think that's a great idea. Without further ado, here's a little clip from Kate Fagan's TED Talk why people love watching sports. And I did shows like Around the Horn, Outside the Lines, First Take. And we would always look at the sports calendar and try to pinpoint the moments when women's sports would be big, like really big. And it was always the same two events, the Olympics, then the World Cup, then the Olympics, toss some tennis in there, but mostly the Olympics and the World Cup. And so we got to thinking, what is it about these two events? What are the common factors that allows women's sports to transcend for these fleeting moments? Because even at the Olympics, the men's swim times are just a fraction of a second faster than the women's. These two events have two crucial elements in common, stakes and storylines. I thought that was a really powerful clip. I'm excited to hear you expand on it a little bit more. As you said, like as somebody who's been either in women's sports or around women's sports or at ESPN trying to get segments on women's sports, you always hear the same kind of arguments. Like no one cares because we only want to watch sports at their highest level. And the more you hear that, the more I would start to think, is that true? Is that why we watch sports? Do we watch sports because people dunk? Do we watch sports? 
because it's quote unquote being played at the highest level. And there is, I'm not saying there's no truth to that. Like there's not, it's not that there's no truth to like the eye popping athleticism that can exist on, on both sides of women's sports and men's sports, but maybe you might say more predominantly on the men's side, but fundamentally that's not why we watch sports. And you can hold this argument up to almost anything that you might've been riveted watching. You watch it for the stakes of the game, whether that can be anything, right? That, and you can, you can, you can artificially introduce stakes. Like as I tried to say, I could, I could say, you know, if either of you watch Succession, you see this play out in the pilot episode of Succession, where maybe some of your listeners have, have seen this, where Kieran oh, yeah. Culkin is an, an asshole and he decides with the the family that's sitting sidelines to this family softball game to bring their son on, and they they seem to be work for the family and of a lower socioeconomic status. And Kieran Culkin's like, if you can hit a home run in this family softball game, I will right now write you a check for a million dollars. Okay, we have our stakes and storylines right there. The stakes are this kid can earn his family a million dollars and change and and change his family's future. And the storyline is like, here's this family that works for this billionaire, you know, Murdoch-like family. Okay, I have all I need. Like, this kid's not good at softball. This family's not good at softball. And yet that sport has just now become riveting to me. And so I just, in that TED Talk, I try to take people through, like, what actually makes us love sports and how perhaps what is holding back at times the W in women's sports has nothing to do with like physiology and everything to do with the structure around our games. It's so fascinating to me. Personally, I am um, a very competitive person. I am deeply rooted. I'm like you. I mean, basketball has been every day for me since Literally, I have had a memory. <laughs> um, <laughs> and as people that cover the league, um, as independent as, as an independent outlet, you know, we're 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 looking at this firsthand, and we're looking at the lacking of coverage from major outlets. We could talk about it till the cows come home. Um, but personally, you know, I just want to say thank you to you for calling that out. Um, I think that takes a lot of courage, and and you can tell by your body of work and everything that you've done and every step you've made in your career. That's that's what you're about. Your actions speak to that. Um, and so for me, you know, I I hope that we can get to a point, you know, where we um, have competition, you know, at the major out major networks, you know, when it comes to the game. And um, I'm super motivated to do that again. Working with Windsider, Just Women Sports, the things that the things that we get to do every day. But again, just from us, thank you for for calling that out because it's such a key key aspect of what you said in that TED talk. Oh well, I, I thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, I think having lived inside of ESPN for almost eight years, I felt like it was imperative to speak openly about the ways ESPN has failed its women's sports. Um, and that was something I tried to talk about internally at ESPN, but there was always kind of like everyone would just point to the fact that we put games on the air or we own rights. And that is, you know, and that is true and that should be commended, but it was hard to see how uh, it was hard. It was hard to overcome the the concept that like, just because you own, for example, the WNBA rights doesn't mean this is the best place for them. If you're not going to actually put them on ESPN proper or build any infrastructure around them. Because I knew, when I was at ESPN, I knew hosts of shows who wouldn't host their show if it got moved to ESPN2. And that wasn't like a diva move. It was like, let's say they had a show on ESPN proper, 
and then the Masters was on, and for two weeks they were going to be on ESPN2, they wouldn't even host the show those weeks because the audience was, I mean, I forget what the data was, but it was like maybe the audience was a fifth of ESPN. And wow. so when, when you could say, like, oh, ESPN's putting X number of WNBA games on TV, I don't, as somebody who's at ESPN, I'm like, all that matters if it's a, is, is on ESPN proper. Uh, well, it's better than not being on TV at all, but ESPN 2's audience is a fraction of ESPN's. And so, anyway, that's, that's a separate kind of um, point that I think is relevant to the larger whole. But there were years, I, I appreciate you commending me, but there were years where I just, for, I just decided I couldn't, it just felt too hard. It was too much of an uphill climb. I'm like, you know what? You know what's easier? Just talking about LeBron. It's just so much easier. Like, right. no one gives you shit. ESPN finds it valuable. You make more money. Like, right, you're more relevant. I kind of got caught up in that for a few years. And then when my dad got sick, I was like, whoa, I really, this is not making me happy. You know, like, I, I knew I wasn't doing what what I set out to do and, like, what made me feel like I was making some small amount of, like, contribution. So I'm, I've tried to return to that in the last couple of years. So you've written multiple books. They're all amazing. You've won awards. Your fourth book, Hoop Muses, I got it right that time, yeah. uh, an insider guide to pop culture and the women's game. I've, I mean, we could do like five hours just picking your brain about how this began, how it started. But like, where did you come up with this idea? It, it like, I know that it might sound like a simple question, but I'm just so curious, like, how did you come up with the idea? And like, what was the first step? So my mom and I have been talking about this in the last week or so, because I'm really close to my mom. Um, and I talk to her a lot, like when I'm out on walks and in, in the anticipation of the book coming out, I'm like, mom, I know I called her on a walk about two years ago. And I had been, I had like worked out, um, Rachel Peloton, a Peloton boot camp workout, no basketball. <laughs> and I was showering and I was like thinking about, all of the ways that I have attempted at various points to get people to understand women's sports, like even on around the horn, you know, if I ever won around quote unquote won around the horn, I was like always trying to talk about female athletes, but it never seemed to like get through to anybody. And I, I remember sort of thinking, let's try it. I was like, let me try it. What would be a completely different approach? And I was just thinking about doing something really joyful and fun and poppy and I, and I think I also own Shea Serrano's book and I just kind of like put the two together and I was like, what if I do, what if I try to like tell some awesome stories in a really like joyful way and really celebrate the culture of it instead of coming at it from like a, why aren't you all paying attention kind of um, right. point of view. And so that, so I remember calling my mom and being like, what if I, what if I tried to like find an amazing illustrator and do this really cool retelling of the history uh, and not just the history of women's basketball, cause that sounds boring, but like pop culture and fashion and storytelling. And so from there it kind of grew. Like I was, then I tried to find an illustrator and then I was like, well, to take it to the next level, I need a true insider because although I played basketball, I certainly wasn't on Team USA. I wasn't in the W. So um, I I knew I needed that last piece to like take it from like what could have been a B plus to like truly insider. Let me just say, by the way, it was not a boring history because you told so many things that I think some people knew, some people didn't. But like, how did you map that out? And, and what was it like working with 
the GOAT, the greatest of all time, Simone <laughs> Well, Simone is, like, she's a game-time performer, as you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was, like, every moment, like, where we were putting together the pitch for it, and Simone wasn't, I mean, not Simone, Sophia wasn't yet attached to the book. She was, like, our number one choice, but we had three illustrators, so when we were pitching the book, it was just me and Simone. And, uh, you know, I we would get on Zooms, because this was kind of post-COVID, with these book publishers, and it was really fun to see Simone, you know, we had talked beforehand, but like, I, I didn't, I, I didn't coach her. Nobody, I didn't coach Simone on anything to say, but like the lights go on, the book publisher zooms and she just, any question they threw at her, she was just so dynamic with it. Just like she would be if she was like driving for a pull-up jumper. She was just like so swaggery. Um, and it was fun, like in the, in the making of the book, it was like, I'm the writer of the book, like I'm, I didn't expect Simone to be like coming at me with like, let's tell the story of 1912 more. So what I knew from the outset that we talked about and that she was great on was like making one, making the book like really uh, specifically accurate, no matter what level of basketball you were at. So like something so minute as like us reimagining NBA jam to be WNBA jam and me being able to go to Simone Augustus and say, I plan to give, uh, let's say, Swin Cash a 70% rating on her rebounding. Is that accurate? I've never rebound, I've never, like, I can watch Swin Cash, but I don't know what true WNBA players think about Sue Bird's defense. You know, I, like, I, I, I don't know, right? There, there are media storylines that get carried away where it's like, Sue, Bird, Sue Bird's the greatest at everything. And Simone could come back and be like, she is great, but maybe her defense isn't great. I'm not saying she said that. Yeah. But it was like stuff like that that I, or like naming the best international players. Or, you know, so many people would tell me, and Simone included, like Deanna Nolan was just the most underrated player in W history. So it was like having that added layer is what I went to Simone for again and again. Unbelievable. I love the um, the Nancy Lieberman story when she goes on the Today Show um, yeah, we talked about the confidence and the swagger, basically just being like flat out, like pay, pay me more. Like I deserve more. And here's why. I mean, I mean, literally like, look at our, look at us right now, 2023, um, all these women demanding more, pushing the envelope, you know, it's no longer like accept the scraps that you're given and just be happy that you have a league to play in. Like that, that was such a cool story. Um, the Nancy Lieberman one. Yeah. I mean, Nancy, you get Nancy Lieberman on the phone and maybe the two of you have already, or maybe you will, but she understands a good story and storytelling. And there's a, like, there's a reason that her game was so legendary because she kind of takes it off the court now too, with like the way she kind of explains how things were and what her role, what, what her role was. It was just so helpful actually across a number of stories. Like even, even the, like the, origin story of the WNBA included Nancy Lieberman because she had like these great stories about conversations with David Stern. So you, it was always really nice when you got somebody on the phone or zoom where the, a lot of what they were sharing with you could be used across the book. Um, like Cheryl Miller was like that for me. Cause like I could, I could, a lot of her storytelling was fantastic for the iconic university of Southern California teams of the eighties, but also the original team USA's with Pat summit. So finding voices like that was just so helpful in telling this, uh, this history. I, I have to ask with the WNBA jams, like who was the person who checked Simone? Because I know she's a very <laughs> humble person, but like, nobody, like, nobody well, checked Simone. 
Who who told her she should put her three point shooting that low on the sliders? Because that is wrong. Wait, That's wait, just wrong. Let me let me go to it. The sad thing is, is I probably did that without anybody to check it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. No, I was like looking through this and just like laughing about like, is Maya hitting up Simone? Like, why'd you put my three pointers so low? You know, yeah. what about that shot in Indiana? Come on. Um, it's so true. <laughs> this this I mean this book is amazing everyone's got to read it and you were talking about like the different you know stories that popped up from you know talking to different people like Nancy Lieberman and I'm so curious like some of the stories in the book are known right like we've we've heard about the kiss the the details of the kiss are obviously more make it more amazing like we all watched that live or replays of it but to hear the backstory of it um and just kind of from one of their perspectives, I think was amazing. And there's tons of stories of like that where we've heard the story, but there's also tons of stories that we hadn't heard before. And I'm curious for you, somebody who grew up in the game, like what was one story that you had like never heard of before, before you started, you know, working on this book? Well, I mean, I like I could go on and on about that because that was really again, I'll bring up my mom because I don't know how many times in the last two years I called her or like sent her a very long voice memo about something I had discovered because going into, going into doing this book, I guess my idea was that I understood women's basketball history. Cause I knew who Cheryl Miller and Myers, you know, Lucia, the fact that I knew Lucia Harris, I thought just meant that I was head and shoulders above anyone else in terms of understanding the history of women's basketball. So I, I, I wasn't sure what I might uncover, but going back and really saying to myself, okay, there's no way once the game is invented in 1891, there's no, and then immediately women start playing it because it's invented as an antidote to like boys rowdiness during the winter and football, you know, is too physical. So let's develop a game that can be played in a gymnasium and is less physical, which means that when women see it, they, the, the, those phys ed teachers, like maybe women can play this too. And we could talk at length about the ridiculous rules and the malleable nature of the rules for a very long time that had to do with um, limiting physicality and the quote unquote unhealthiness of it for, for women. But I was like every decade of this from 1900s to 1910s, like there will be women playing this game. That means that going into this, I couldn't have told you anybody from the 1900s, let alone like, the 1930s, 1940s, all of that. And so all of that was new to me. And what was, what was like reinforced my belief about what I talk about, whether when it comes to the media coverage and the storytelling around women's sports, it reinforced this idea that like part of what has limited women's sports has been that it is always having to reintroduce itself because we don't, we don't mythologize and solidify the stories that exist in women's, let's say in this case, women's basketball, the way we might in men's history. You know, like we're never going to, well, those of us who pay attention, we're never going to not know who Fog Allen is because his name is on the Kansas gym or court. I don't know which it is, right? So, but in women, in the case of women, it was like, as soon as they were making history, there was no documentary. There was no like audio archival, like where people thought it was important enough to save or tell so this thing happens where it, it kind of erodes as it's happening until you get to present day. And like, you might be able to find one lone woman historian who thought something was important and, and did enough to um, unearth that nugget. But 
I guess I'm saying all of this to, to point out that there was about 80% of this that I didn't know from the first intercollegiate game in 1896 between Stanford and Cal and like the incredible details around that game yeah. to the Fort Shaw teams of a team of 1904 that like performs at the state fair through to the AAU structure of the forties and fifties, which is a completely different structure than any of us understand in terms of how sports and um, businesses or colleges interact. So it was like all of this and it all sheds light on our current state of women's basketball. Um, and you know, why for, I, I don't want to go on too long here, but like all of it is relevant today too, in my mind. Keep going. I could listen to oh. it all day. Well, here's what, I know you're kidding, but I am going to keep going on no. one thing. Go, we, both go, play, go. We, we both played in the NCAA and it's not like I thought the NCAA like was obsessed with women's sports, but like, I didn't think of it as a villain. I thought of it overall as a villain, you know, like everyone hates the NCAA, but the fact that I'm playing basketball in like 1999 to 2003, and I don't know the history of the fact that for almost a decade from 1972 to 1981, the NCAA had a million dollar war chest to attempt to overturn Title IX. And that the only reason they pivoted to want to oversee women's sports was because they realized they had failed in overturning Title IX. And they thought, well, if we can't overturn Title IX, we better govern women's sports so that we can ensure that as many resources as we can retain for men as possible, wow. we can retain for men. So it's like, so then at the Fountain Blue Hotel in Miami in I think 1981, they have a vote. It doesn't pass. And then they go behind the backs of the women to have a re-vote, and it does pass. And it like it's a death knell for women governing, governing women's sports. And, and so it's like when something happens, like the COVID bubble disparities, and women have eight-pound weights and a yoga mat, and men have, you know, sprawling weight room, you, you you look back at the history and you're like, well, no, no wonder they didn't they didn't ever want to govern women's sports. They just wanted to ensure that men always got more than half as much as they could without being sued was always the game plan. And once you know that history, it just changes how you look at how you look at how our how our society treats women's sports. Well, and you said it perfectly, too, like we both have been in this space our entire life. And how much of us how much of this did we not know? You know, like, like there was no way for us to necessarily know, like you said, unless you found the one historian or expert that happened to talk about it. I mean, until I got into the media side, which was within the last five years, there was so much that and I'm still learning. I'm learning from you in this conversation right now. Clearly this book is going to continue to learn and everything you're saying. Um, yeah. I mean, a lot of chills going through me um, as I'm listening to you talk. I know Aria wants to ask about the redheaded question. Let's get that out of the way. Go ahead. <laughs> Let's go. Well, I have to, because I, I learned about it like on a random, you know, if you're a WNBA fan, you're probably in a, if, and on Facebook, you're probably in a random WNBA Facebook group or Twitter or something. <laughs> and somebody posted some video about the all American redheads. And I'm looking at this. I'm like, wait a second. You know, obviously, look, I'm well aware of the fact I did not grow around the women's game like the, the two of you. But like, I thought, well, how did I not know about this? How is it possible that this existed? Me, somebody who's just a diehard redhead supporter and diehard women's basketball supporter, like two of my favorite things. How did I not know? Um, <laughs> like, although I will say I'm a little bit sad to hear that some of the players dyed their hair red. Um, 
but <laughs> like I mean it was it was so cool I remember you know being young and meeting one of the female players on the Harlem Globetrotters and just thinking that was the coolest thing ever um can you tell our listeners who have not gotten the book yet who will be buying it very shortly uh a little bit about the all-american redheads and why they were the greatest basketball team of all time <laughs> well I don't know if I agree with that last part but I'm willing <laughs> to tell you that they uh, the details right that they were founded in 1936 and so the best way to think about them, because it's, of course, as we always have to do, we have to have like our male proxy to help you understand women's sports is like they're basically the Harlem Globetrotters, except white women dyeing their hair red is their gimmick. But like they're a barnstorming team and they existed for I think it was like 40 years or something like that. Don't it's not exactly right. But like they're traveling the country for decades with women most of them not natural redheads because that would probably be an impossibility in a decade like the 1940s to have like 10 amazing female basketball players who who are all naturally redheaded but and they they're born of this era and you see it happen because it's happening on parallel tracks like in like the missouri kind of era era there are these the it's almost like an offshoot of like the circus culture you know, like the Barnum kind of circus culture where, where people put together these kind of barnstorming teams with gimmicks. And so they're, they're an offshoot of that while sim- simultaneously similar things are happening in like black Chicago and black Philadelphia, where there are teams like the co-eds or the, or the AC Romers or the Philadelphia Tribunes, like they're also developing and barnstorming. And you, you can go through archives and look at the way the posters were made. And it's, it's kind of this early iteration of like one of the women's probably six, four and the posters like, come see the seven footer, you know, stuff like that. And so the redheads are kind of part of that, that, that cultural era, which really what's fascinating to me is like, it reflects our history as a, like as a country. And when I was in college at the university of Colorado, I took this course called, and everybody wanted in on this course, America through baseball. And you learn all about like maybe free agency or integration and like how it reflects America. And it's this thing that men's sports gets to do, which is we get to tie our like where we were in time and our relationships and our history to men's sports. And women's sports is doing the same thing if you go back and look, but it doesn't have the luxury of allowing itself to like storytell around that or like embed itself in your DNA around that because no one was there to capture this stuff. But like people should go, I mean, obviously we have a chapter of it in Hoop Muses, but teams like the All-American Redheads and the Coeds, like these are these are stories that could be scripted shows on HBO. And they never have been, and maybe someday we'll get to the point where they will be, but they're a part of this incredible lineage of how women were able to play the game and where our country was at that certain time that allowed them within certain parameters, right? Like we had to have a gimmick. Or, you know, or that, and they had to be, certainly all of them had to be, quote unquote, all straight. And certain things that, certain parameters that existed in the country at that time. But everywhere you look, everywhere you look, you could find a story like a barnstorming, all redheaded team. Just something really like kind of juicy and interesting that you might never have known about. That's a perfect segue for what I, my next question. I mean, clearly, you know, you've got your show off the looking glass. Hoop Muses is all the rage right now. <laughs> clearly. I um, hope. <laughs> super, super, I mean, well, obviously there, there's a huge need for this. Um, and and as, as I said before, your work, your actions have continuously through the course of your career spoken to kind of what it is you're after. 
even even your decision to kind of walk away from ESPN. I mean, for, for women's basketball, for women's sports, ESPN is the, the mecca, right? So yeah. I kind of want to know, like, now, um, imagine, just pretend you have unlimited resources, unlimited um, funding, investors, whatever. If you could do anything, if you, would you what would you do? Would, would you, would you continue to write books? Would you create a network? Like if you could do anything, if you could have any goal accomplished, what would you go do? I think what I would love to do is when we, so we make off the looking glass. It's a pot, it's a podcast that we, we do sketch comedy that tries to like flip everything on its head when it comes to both the sports culture and the way a lot of times men, but also women disparage women's sports and try to like flip all that on its head through comedy and also tell these stories throughout history that are so in my mind, like so dynamic that we've never heard. And I would, and I don't think this is like too outlandish of a goal, but we would love to stand that show up and be kind of like a, like a, an hour long show on, on whichever streamer buys the WNBA rights, because I think we are on this specifically talking about basketball. Like we are on this. Um, I think we're on this. We're in this moment where what do we have two seasons left before the league rights are up again. And mm-hmm. I think that there's going to be a huge, I think there's gonna be a huge shift in the W at that moment, because it won't be, just be the influx of money for whoever buys the rights to the W. It will also be paired with a necessity of storytelling and mythologizing of the, and I don't use that word to be like, let's just make everyone sound amazing. But I mean, like truly what mythologizing is, is like helping us understand where we've been. And I would love to be a part of what I think is going to be that, that shift in the women's game coming up, because I just think I've been so inspired by writing hoop muses. I I've always loved reading and learning about history, but I've been really blindsided in the best possible way by how many truly thrilling women have existed in history in our game and how they deserve to have these like really cool stories told. So I guess that would kind of be the dream would be to create a show that backfilled in a really, really entertaining, interesting, joyful way, our game, because we're like no longer at that place where we just have to, we just got to like beg people to tune in. Like we, we kind of have this solid foundation of the WNBA is here right? We're, we're good. Yeah. Can we now go back and tell the stories that should have been told so people understand how we got to today? Like, that's something I'm really invested in now. Well, and I kind of feel like we're at a point where, and I know Ari and I, we talk about this all the time, like, we're at, like, I feel like we're at a point where, like, those opportunities are just, they're right around the corner. Those things are coming. Those shows are coming. You know, someone to compete, you know, against the ESPNs of the world. Like, I just, I, I get the feeling that this is right around the corner um, in terms of just that type of coverage that you're talking about. Like that's the sense I get. So I agree with you on that. Yeah. Oh yeah. I would say even like you see it in the shoe game, right? We, we talk about Nike doing the air swoops and Adidas investing in the women's players and Puma also, but then someone, and I always jokingly, but seriously say like the real motto of WNBA fans is F it. We'll do it ourselves because yep. like Moolah kicks making shoes for the women's basketball players, as opposed to waiting for these major companies to do it the right way. Okay, well, if you're not going to do it, we're going to go do it ourselves. Shameless plug. That's how Winsider started. Like, that's how 
her hoop stats started. That's how the next started in just women's sports. And I think it's been amazing to watch. Obviously, we all live in this bubble because, you know, all of the people that we talk to and our friend, our good, good friends um, are, are in it with us. Um, so I never fully know, like, do I think we're close because I see it more on my timeline or are we close because it's truly getting bigger and bigger? I think it's a combo of both, but we've kept you for long enough. I know <laughs> I'm very excited. All of our listeners are super excited for the release of this book, March 7th. Get your copy. Like I said, I've been reading it daily. I've read over multiple stories. Um, the artwork is insane. The stories are insane. I'm not, this is not even like, uh, oh, you're our guest. So I have to be kind about this. Like, this is actually the greatest book I've ever seen in my life. Um, <laughs> Kate, can you please tell people where they can buy it, pre-order it, buy it again, uh, send it as gifts um, and anywhere else? Yeah. Well, thank you for that. That really is. I'm, I'm excited for its release and it is really kind of you to share those very positive words about it. Um, so I right now in my Instagram handle, because it's impossible to tell people a, a link over audio, but I'm at Kate Fagan three on Instagram and I have a pre-order link there because you can pre-order the book through this specific um, dis local distributor. I mean, they're a local bookshop. They may not be your local bookshop, but rest assured it is a local bookshop. And Sophia and I have signed, we, Sophia created four bookmarks from the book and we signed them so that anybody who pre-orders the book, gets like a randomly selected bookmark. So you could pre-order the book there. And then otherwise like, wherever you get your books. I mean, obviously I would hopefully bookshop.org is a place like Amazon, but it supports local bookshops. Um, but you know, if you need to buy it through Amazon, I guess I'd rather you buy it than not buy it. And that is often the easiest, but please, if you have a local bookshop, buy it there. Um, I just want to say like, to be completely upfront and honest, I, the moment I saw this was coming out, I pre-ordered it. So right. I, I'm not just sitting here, you know, won't smoke or anything like I am full-fledged um in support of this we are truly truly appreciative of your time I know you're super busy um and thank you for sharing your wisdom and and your basketball thoughts yeah thank you both for having me on and for a fun conversation